And I think this sort of leads into something that's actually gotten some, I mean, I know there's been like Senate hearings about this sort of strategic concerns in the US about the extent to which China dominates the 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 EV supply chain. Like what what are those what are those fears and 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 how real are they? I think it's it's hard to oversell how real they are. Um and I think the the point is that they they don't start with just um you know battery cell and um battery production facilities. They start all the way upstream. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the uh, founder of the Human Driving Association, the producer of Apex, the Secret Race Across America, and the director of special operations for Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And um, today, guys, I'm, I'm really excited about this show. Uh, because for me, it's a little bit of a return to my past. Um, I was fascinated with sort of international affairs when I was younger. I definitely did model United Nations, if that gives you a, a little bit of a clue of, of what younger me too. Into. Me too. And, uh, and actually, uh, today's our guest today, um, uh, we got in touch because of actually some reporting that I'd done uh, way back in like 2010. Um, I had... Uh, sort of as part of my my coverage of the of the auto bailout in this country, um, sort of looked into what had happened in China with General Motors and um, and sort of uncovered that um, that there had been this whole sort of transaction that had happened and and a lot of assets had kind of gotten shifted to the, the Chinese partner and um, it was one of those stories that I thought was super fascinating but like went nowhere and got very little traction even though I felt it was really important and then one day recently I got an email from the gentleman uh, Nathan Pickersick and. Uh, he, he he said he'd actually read it. He's probably the first person <laughs> to actually admit to me to having read this reporting in particular. And um, it turns out that this is very much in line with what he studies. So without further ado, uh, Nathan, welcome to the Atonicast. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to, to join the chat. And yeah, Ed, I think the, the themes that you were following back in the auto bailout were things that um, I'm a little bit of an auto nerd and I wasn't really even familiar with. Um, but what my company, Horizon Advisory, focuses on is um, studying Chinese industrial policy. And we're seeing a lot of discussion of these um, Chinese investments in 2009, 2010 in Chinese sources. And the only real source that I could find that was um, going into detail about this in the English language um, press was your set of stories. Um, so, yeah, that's what, that's what brought us here. Yeah, and it just I, you you don't know how much uh, warmth it brings to my heart to know that 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 effort was not wasted. That somebody found some utility in it. So, could you just give some like broad? So, you mentioned your, your company's Horizon Advisory. You study Chinese industrial policy. Like before we get into the the specifics of of what's happening in, in automotive or EVs or AVs, can you just give us some broad context by what you mean by Chinese industrial policy? Like, what is it, and, and sort of how do you study it? Yeah, so I think the the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state have a particular way that they go about um, pursuing their industrial and economic development goals. Um, it largely builds on the models that have um, been refined elsewhere in the world, whether the the capitalist system in the United States or the control economy of the Soviet Union or the models of the Asian tigers um, in, in their neighborhood. Um, and we look at from Chinese. Um, primary language sources, the the mechanisms and the strategic goals that are at work 
in China and that generate then implications for global competitors of Chinese firms, um, government actors who may be concerned about um, security risks associated with Chinese actors and um, for investors who might want to stay ahead of where the the Chinese economy and the Chinese um, corporate sector may be headed next. Yeah. And and so the auto industry, I mean, has kind of famously been one of China's like main industrial, like building their own auto industry. Um, going back to, well, I mean, like Deng Xiaoping, basically almost, right? Um, and um, as a, you know, some some people are familiar. Um, if, if you're not, and you'd like a sort of introduction to to some of these early days, um, American Wheels Chinese Roads by Michael Dunn is a really interesting sort of story about sort of how the American car companies sort of first went into China and 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 some of their early encounters with some of this stuff. It kind of leaves off where um, you know where where we're picking up here, sort of in 2010. But um, w- so what what are the the Chinese government's goals for their auto industry, and like why do they have them? Why is the auto industry seen as as such a strategic priority for them. Yeah, it's, it's super fascinating how they talk about autos. And, and as you said, it sort of it dates all the way back to um, their formative reform and opening. Um, but they call the auto sector an industry of industries. So they value it not just to have cars on the road, but because they see the the role of induction, industrial capacity of production and of the sort of spin-off and spin-on opportunities that exist tangential to the auto industry as value adds. And I think the way that um, China thinks about this is that the Chinese sort of industrial planners, I don't want to be too um, overly um, prescribed and in, in monolithic treatment of, of China as a whole, but the Chinese economic development planners and the industrial system seem to think about um, preserving the domestic economy. So they want to have uh, an auto industry that can service their consumers and their domestic market. Um, and I think that's the, the primary goal and one that they've focused on addressing over the past few decades. And then from there, they they see this sector as one of several key sectors, industries of industries, where there may be leapfrog opportunities, where they can jump ahead of the pack globally um, to generate economic returns, um, but also to generate influence in terms of political um, and, and corporate influence, and also in terms of security influence. One of the interesting pieces of the early focus of the Chinese auto industry was it aligns very directly with the defense industry. So they have a concept of military civil fusion and many of the early auto companies were organized under the Chinese sort of bureaucratic organs that handled science and technology for national defense. Um, So there's a a history and a trajectory of security and um, auto sector being um, very tightly intertwined in China. Um, and I think there are also you know, reason to believe that they um, read things from World War II history in the United States and the role of production capacity in, in the United States as um, telling of the importance of an auto sector. Um, so I, I think that's a, a key aspect of it that is enduring. Um, but I think the primary focus has been um, securing the domestic market and having domestic champions who can service domestic demand. Um, but increasingly, certainly we're seeing that there's um, interactions globally to go out and get technology, but also then to eventually um, have Chinese champions that can compete, um, certainly in, in sort of parts and supply chain, but um, eventually also at the OEM level globally. Are there any other countries that are trying to model themselves after, well, in a way, you know, as you mentioned, sort of the U.S., laid a little bit of the groundwork to that. And, and China has followed that in terms of understanding the importance of auto manufacturing during wartime. But specifically how China has um, 
created this system and importance around automotive. Are there any other countries that are running parallel to that or are, are trying to emulate that? I think there's reason to look to the stories of Japan and South Korea. And historically, I think the auto sectors in each of those countries um, had a similar role. Um, but I guess the, the distinction and where I think the it seems Chinese strategic thought understands that they may have a, a different set of advantages is just in terms of the scale of what they're doing. So they, if they capture their domestic market, can have an economy of scale that propels something that um, is better position than what you know Japanese or South Korean economic planners could have um, ever dreamed for. So why why do some people consider China a threat and India not? The the simplest, I think, like in a geopolitical explanation, tends to fall back onto regime type. So India is a democracy and China is something less than a democracy. So I think that's typically the the first point that um, someone would make in countering that. Um, and then I think otherwise, there's a, a culture in India of um, sort of independence and non-interference that um, seems to be something more real than what um, the Chinese version of that is. So um, China sort of effectively um, will use the same types of terms as um, Indian strategists might use at a sort of like high politics, geopolitical level, um, but their behavior suggests something different. So um, in a you know an example tangential to this sector, if you look to recent history, 2010, um, China cuts off rare earth exports to Japanese consumers um, amidst a, a territorial spat. So they've they've used industrial capacity as coercive leverage in geopolitical context in a way that, um, you know, relatively unprovoked hasn't been done um, other than, you know, if if you want to point to things that Russia is doing running around the world, but um, certainly that I don't think India has done in their contemporary history. So early, so in the 90s, when they first sort of allowed foreign automakers, uh, starting with the Americans, to, to enter the country, um, the, the uh, carrot if you will, was exactly what you mentioned. It was that it was access to that market, right? I mean, everyone looked at this giant market and, or at least the potential for a giant market at that point and, and wanted in, and they were able to sort of use that leverage, right? To essentially, I mean, there were a number of requirements, but basically form a, a, a joint venture with a Chinese company. Like what was the thinking behind that? And also like, how what, was that actually effective as, as a strategy for the Chinese sort of forcing, you know, companies, uh, foreign companies into joint ventures in order to, to access the, their domestic market? Yeah, I don't think there's any way to read it other than successful for the Chinese actors. I think the logic at first, I think, is to what they would call, quote unquote, bring in. Um, and they're talking about investment um, as well as technology. So clearly that works in the first order that it gets these international players to bring technology and to share it under some um, context in the terms of a joint venture um, and also to bring capital to help mature the, the sector. Um, it also brings the, the sort of more tacit aspects of um, human capital. So you bring in training and you bring in job opportunities that help to develop an ecosystem that can be built on down the road. Um, so I, th I think it, it hits all of those dimensions, but I think the, the first and the primary goals um, with those opening up moves um, we're definitely focused on technology and, and investment. So um, you mentioned the 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 carrot, um, Ed, was to 
foreign automakers, like the GMs of the world, is to access that market. But Nathan, I'm wondering if there is, besides that obvious one, which is potential customers at what is now what the largest auto market in the world, um, has there been any other benefit from what you can tell to foreign automakers going into China besides just accessing the customer? I think it's decreased cost profile would be the next obvious one. So um, China provides tremendous opportunity to control costs, to have different economies of scale, um, to, uh, I think, likely satisfy um, a sort of trend toward horizontal um, integration, vice vertical integration. So um, OEMs are able to invest at the sort of upstream and to launch new brands or new models because they're not investing their capital and in vertically integrating their supply chain um, sort of all the way down to their supply base because they have confidence that they've invested in something, meaning Chinese production capacity that is reliable, um, gets the job done and can consistently do so at uh, a relatively controlled cost. So they don't have to control that asset to be confident that the cost will be controlled, um, which I think is kind of the the biggest theme in terms of that I, I expect will emerge as Chinese auto players begin to go global um, themselves. That Chinese players are going to benefit from relative vertical vertical integration vis a vis their international competitors um, who are going to have brand value and are going to have the sort of legacy positioning in in key markets but are not going to have control of their supply chains. Um, so I want to get into the supply chain thing in a, in a part of this in a, in a second, but, but maybe to, to kind of set that up a little bit, um, like Tesla. And also I want to talk more about Tesla later because that's there clearly some interesting things going on there that kind of hard to, to interpret from the other side of the Pacific. Are you sure you want to talk about Tesla? Really? Yeah. So surprising, Ed. So surprising. But I'm wondering sort of like, okay, so so they had this rule and it was, I mean, decades, right? That if you wanted into China, you had to partner with a with a, um, a Chinese automaker, 50-50 joint venture. Um, Tesla was the first company that did not have that requirement. Um, do you have any, is, is that like, does that reflect a sort of broader policy shift away from that? That approach was it a one-off kind of thing? What, how, how do you interpret that that sort of break from that that joint venture model? Yeah, I think it's probably more of an exception, though um, some of it's evolutionary. So as the Chinese system itself becomes um, more capable and confident in its players, it won't impose the same restrictions. Um, same same for as it's confident in its capital positioning and confident in its technological positioning. It doesn't have to use those forced sort of um, organizational structure moves to get what they want. Um, so some of it's evolutionary where there will be opportunities like that provided to Tesla. But I think that the the Tesla story is probably more reflective of um, a global brand that had a certain cachet and um, value within the Chinese system that, um, you know, gives them some leverage in terms of negotiating to enter the market um, because they are something that's different that is perceived a certain way by a certain tier of Chinese consumer. Um, but certainly we've seen uh, just recently that that doesn't necessarily guarantee um, consistent position or, or growth within the market. I think it might suggest that um, Tesla does have something of a floor in the Chinese market um, where many other players may not. Um, so I'm not as overly 
pessimistic that the the story for Tesla in China is completely over at this point, where I think there are certain people that are reacting to news over the past couple months in that way. Um, but at the same time, I think that the the evolutionary aspect is is playing out right before our eyes, that the Chinese system is um, maturing in terms of capital, in terms of access to technology, and in terms of, of capacity to compete for that same tier of Chinese consumer and to prepare to go out and compete globally. Have any Chinese car manufacturers had gain traction outside of the Chinese markets? Um, in certain African markets. So some Chinese manufacturers have been present globally for a longer period of time. The The big, well-capitalized players um, are just beginning now to make their steps. And I think you would look for someone like Neo to be um, probably an early one to have any actual traction in developed economies in, in Europe um, before um, you'd look for the, the traditional players. Um, certainly, they've had very productive R&D partnerships globally in the United States and in Israel and other developed economies. Um, and they're present and understand the market. But um, I don't think I'd point to any as being successful in terms of traction at the OEM sort of brand level. Sorry to my friends. Excuse me. I have two more follow-up questions. Um, for those who don't know what the Belt and Road Initiative is, could you please give a quick summary? And I'm curious to know whether Chinese strategic thinking is so integrated that their automotive exports are aligned with Belt and Road? Yeah, to take them in reverse order, I think absolutely. I think exports of value-add goods like autos are going to be corresponding to that roadmap that you see through the Belt and Road Initiative. And the Belt and Road Initiative is essentially the the current or most recent label of a decades-long program that falls under the concept of go out. Um, so the the Chinese idea of beginning to move beyond their borders and to establish key markets um, that to some extent fall along the traditional sort of Silk Road route um, through Central Asia into Europe um, and that will serve as the sort of keystone beachheads that Chinese industrial players establish um, to be able to dominate through export. Um, and clearly, China's export-driven economic model is one that's um, proven to, to work in certain sectors, um, and we've seen their um, control of key industrial segments grow, including those in developed economies. Um, we haven't seen that quite yet at the, at the brand level um, at, in autos, but I think you're right to point out that it's going to fall along the lines of, of the Belt and Road map. So. I mean, after World War II, you know, United States, you know, initiated the Marshall Plan, rebuilt Germany and Japan, and no matter whether it was a Republican or Democratic administration, the State Department, our foreign policy, and our business interests, our American business interests, were aligned, regardless of what party was in power. Uh, since in the let's just consider the last forty years. Uh, it, is U.S. since we don't have central planning the way the Chinese do? I mean, does the U.S. have an advantage because private enterprise you know, are, decides independently whether to look at certain countries and invest? Is that an advantage, or are we at a disadvantage in your opinion compared to the Chinese who are integrating like the highest level national initiatives with industries that are domestic that want to export goods? Um, I, 
I risk going off on a tangent here, but I think the the key distinction from the World War era or post-World War II era, um, even the Cold War era, I think is that the impact of network effects across industries is quite different and makes global competition quite different. Um, and I think this is where the Chinese model is um, quite sharp and actually, yes, is an advantage relative to our decentralized um, capitalist system. Um, because China is able to protect its domestic market, it's guaranteed to have a user base, no matter what sort of industrial application we're talking about, that gives it a level playing field globally, even if it you know, is behind in terms of technology or behind in terms of capital, if it controls its domestic market, um, whether we're talking about cars or rail cars or um, processing of rare earths, China as a domestic economy is so big and oriented around sort of consolidating that control that they're going to be able to play globally. Um, and that allows them to make up for, in some contexts, um, the things that they lack vis-a-vis our decentralized system where the private enterprise is um, out there profit-seeking, um, especially so if private enterprise um, from the West, from the United States, um, is induced to pursue um, engagement in the Chinese market, um, which often forces the private enterprise to make a trade-off between short-term reward and long-term positioning. Um, which would be the case that you know I would explain the early Chinese approaches to Western automakers um, that they went in trying to capture this domestic market to decrease their costs, um, but the true long-term cost for them was transferring technology that has helped to sow the seeds of new global competitors. Um, my understanding, just to go back to Tesla for a moment. Um, And I promise it's a broader question, but my understanding was when Tesla built its factory, it was the first one that wasn't done um, as a a JV, as a joint venture. Um, I'm wondering from your view how how that has, I don't know, I mean, there's the obvious benefits to Tesla, but what's happening within the industry? Are we going to see more of that? Or is there been any backlash to that at all? I'm kind of... I understood what happened, but I, I'm less familiar with how it's played out. I, I think it's seen as largely um, beneficial and positive, but I don't think it portends an expansion of that type of opportunity because Tesla comes in with a certain you know unique positioning that not many other um, international actors in the auto sector have. Um, and Chinese industries developed to a point that if they're going to be sweetheart deals done, they're going to be done for cattle and BYD, not for um, some legacy OEM from the West who, who might want to develop a new production facility. So this is seen to you as more of an outlier than a you know moving practice moving forward. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I mean, I guess let's let's get into this then. So so you know, Tesla gets this unique deal um that seems like pretty exceptional uh and then subsequently and and you know for for context like the the gm story that i covered it's it's it seems like this is sort of how china on, on a very like broad level does it they kind of lure you in right and then kind of turn up the 
turn the screws on you um, as you become more dependent on whether it's their market or, or whatever else. Um, and it was actually almost a little surprising to me to see sort of all of a sudden this would look to me like a pretty concerted like PR campaign against Tesla, uh, focusing on defects, on their attitudes towards consumers, a lot of other things. Also, I, I, my understanding is that consumer advocacy is something that often is used sort of for political goals in, in China as well. What, can you just explain, so what is your read of, of this sort of explosion of, of critical coverage out of China of Tesla just in the last six months or so? Yeah, I think it's just a really unfortunate from the from the Tesla perspective, unfortunate confluence of um, real consumer advocacy and product quality issues um, that generate the type of broad based reaction that um, you know I think has drawn the most attention. But also coming at a time when U.S. China tensions are at a high. Um, where the Chinese industrial system is pretty much looking for whatever's you know sticking up as the biggest target that they can smack within their market, um, so that sort of puts the um, target right squarely on actors like Tesla who have um, given who have been given sort of unique positioning within the Chinese market, um, but clearly you know are perceived as um, foreigners or outsiders. So. Um, I think that draws extra attention. And if that happens at a time when, um, you know, pr- produces an environment that's conducive to um, sort of cascading effects. So um, one product defect or one story that ends up, you know, catching fire on social media um, actually leads to action. I think when you're in that type of environment, um, as opposed to just catching a news cycle and disappearing. So it's, so it's not, so it's, is it about industrial policy you think, or is it, is it more, is it like more for, for like domestic politics reasons? Is, is that kind of, I think there's a getting out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a domestic audience. So I think that the industrial policy system, which itself is, um, you know, closely connected to the political system has a, assigns incredible value to the domestic audience. So if there are issues that, um, are drawing attention of consumers, they are going to be responsive because they're fearful of that type of um, criticism escalating beyond being a criticism of a company and becoming criticism of a municipal municipal authority or provincial government or the Chinese Communist Party itself. So there definitely is responsive um, behavior from for, for the domestic audience. Um, but then I think this is happening at the same time where there's also incentive for signaling to the United States and the broader sort of industrial competition that um, China is um, going to use the the tools that they have in their arsenal and and not be um, shy about doing so. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, that makes Tesla and, and EVs in general, right. And like, I think uh, is, is that, you know, when you operate a, a an EV factory in China, right? Tesla can't just bring batteries from their existing Panasonic plants. They have to, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but but partner with the Chinese battery maker. And I think this sort of leads into something that's actually gotten some. I mean, I know there's been like Senate hearings about this sort of strategic concerns in the U.S. about the extent to which China dominates the 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 EV supply chain. Like, what what are those what are those fears, and 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 how real are they? I think it's it's hard to oversell how real they are, um, and I think the the point is that they they don't start with just um, you know battery cell and um, battery production facilities. They start all the way upstream. So um, the critical materials that 
um, most of our current um, battery chemistries depend upon are tend to be, you know, relatively rare or distributed in a consolidated fashion types of extractive resources. And China has for the past 20 years taken a pretty deliberate approach to gobbling those up. So um, if you look at cobalt being a good example, DRC say produces 60% of the world's cobalt um, any given year and 80% of DRC's share of cobalt exports directly to China. It has no um, you know, real refining capacity. Everything gets um, processed in China. Um, so that's a pretty strong um, sort of grip that the Chinese industrial policy, policy system has over you know, a, a given um, input. But the same story effectively plays out when you look at cobalt. Um, and certainly, I think we've hit on the, the rare earth point um, where we have more demand for permanent magnets as um, electrification takes root um, across the supply chain. So I think it's um, a positioning that, that builds all the way from the upstream through refining and processing of what's extracted and then certainly into um, the battery production and, and technology. Um, and I think the, the thing that we're watching most closely now is the way that um, Chinese capital is positioning to partner with um, next generation battery development. So to be ahead of the curve on battery chemistries, um, to be invested in the EV players that seem like they have unique um, IP to um, you know sort of get ahead of the range limitations um, and all the while continuing to position for that sort of very upstream um, control in terms of extractive resources. So, you know, going back again to the Cold War, uh, you know, U.S. forces were positioned overseas in the Middle East. CENTCOM was created to protect, you know, uh, oil sources. Do you anticipate that in the decades to come, the Chinese will seek to expand their permanent military bases overseas in parts of the world where there are precious metals required for future batteries? I, the simple answer is is yes, of course, and they have sort of strategic and doctrinal discussions that support that reality. Um, the slightly more nuanced argument, I guess, would be that um, they rely on this concept of military civil fusion for projecting power um, in, in most ways that they might want to project power. Um, and they're likely to fall on that as well for how they think about um, facilities and permanent basing. Um and if you take that argument, um, they pretty much already are. So you can you know, look at the string of pearls logic of the way that they have invested in port infrastructure globally. Um, and you can look at the way that... Are there ports in South America? Yes. Um, so um, Chinese companies, I think, sit astride both sides of the Panama Canal um, and dot, um, yes, the, the places that you would think of as the lithium triangle type um, port infrastructures. And, and even on this front, it's another sort of telling example of the way that the Chinese system seeks this sort of vertical integration, because when they come in and invest in a port, um, whether they own it or just operate a piece of it, um, Chinese actors also will bring in their own port IT infrastructure and customs clearing processes um, and sort of embed themselves throughout the system so that uh, at a bare minimum, these Chinese players end up with information that's superior to um, the locals who might still own or operate within these types of facilities. So I think there's an argument to be made that 
the Chinese version of power projection and certainly of, of presence for protecting critical assets um, is probably already real and looks a little bit different. You mentioned, um, Alex, you know, uh, South, South America, but I, I think also of Africa, they're quite active there. Um, and especially in terms of sort of these exchanges of lending financial support to then ingratiate themselves or deeper into into the country. So are you seeing that same level of activity on that continent as well? Yeah, China, China's presence in Africa is uh, in one way a marvel to behold. Um, and uh, not to be too redundant here, but the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo example, is probably the most um, directly relevant when we think about EV supply chains. Um, they're, they've been there for a while. They're invested in um, having a controlling ownership stake or minority ownership stake in uh, a few dozen of the or a couple dozen of the biggest um, cobalt mines in the country. Um, and they are the, the key economic trading partner. So, and I think with the, with the EV supply chain, um, the way it's happened, I mean, you kind of were talking about how it, this is sort of people, a lot of people who, who were about these kinds of things sort of kind of almost woke up and, and just realized like, holy cow, if we all shift it to EVs, you know, in a really concerted way, we're going to make ourselves dependent on China in a, in a really unique way. It kind of hints at like one of the advantages of that strategy, right? Which is that, um, you know, if a Chinese company tries to buy a major like OEM, uh, you know, one of the names that everyone thinks of when they think of car companies, like that can get people's hackles up and raise a lot of, but like in the supply chain, they can kind of just be going in and then, and they clearly have been for a long time, been going in and making these acquisitions um, and, and not sort of generating that, um, that, that fear and that backlash, right? Is, is that one of the, the reasons that they're, they're pursuing that strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, certainly in how they think about the U.S. market, I know um, to go back to the fantastic reporting you did a decade ago, Ed, um, the, the funding mechanisms and the strategic discourse that supported, you know, kind of buying the dip of um, assets that were depreciating in the financial crisis in the United States um, was always paired with discussion of how to keep a low profile, how to um, ingratiate with local authorities and to um, not draw the attention of potential regulatory or security concerns, um, which is just, it's fascinating to see that there was such sort of explicit and deliberate discussion from um, the Chinese industrial policy system that, you know, helped finance and then guide some of the overseas acquisitions. Um, but at the same time, we've, we've seen um, Chinese capital move in um, since then at even the OEM and brand level. So um, big acquisitions would be um, Volvo. And I think in uh, interesting one to follow in terms of EV evolution moving forward is, is Lotus. Mm. Mm. So, so how does the Geely, cause Geely, Geely acquired both of those companies and they've made a number of, of acquisitions sort of around the world and in Malaysia with Proton, I mean, London electric vehicle a company as well in, in the UK. Um, where, do, how, how does Geely fit in uh, with government policy? Are they aligned with it? Cause they aren't, they weren't originally a state owned enterprise, right? Um, so they seem like a little bit of an outlier potentially, but explain sort of how you see Geely fitting into, into this strategy. Yeah, I, I, again, at, at risk of going off on too much of a tangent, but um, tech, like typically the the layout, they use this term layout to describe like the industrial positioning of um, different domestic firms. And there will be 
core champions who are meant to service the domestic economy and meant to operate within the domestic ecosystem. And they tend to be paired with actors who are meant to go out and engage globally. Um, And those actors, this latter set, who are meant to go out and engage globally, tend to be given a profile within domestic press and then certainly messaging that's sent out to the world that conveys that they're more of a you know private sector um, free enterprise type actor um, and I would think that the Geely fits within this type of model that they sit astride the other players um, think of Chung on as one who um, you know you might not hear of as much globally but as a, a core player within the domestic auto sector um, Geely's sort of position is, somewhat of an alternative that is able to go out and engage globally in the world, um, bring back technology, bring back expertise, guarantee that the Lotus SUV is going to be built in Wuhan, um, that type of thing. And I mean, is the, is the, I mean, Volvo, I know within the auto industry, the Volvo acquisition is kind of seen as one of the more successful purchase, right? Cause like uh, you have other examples like uh, Tata of India buying Jaguar Land Rover, um, there's been a number of these things, and 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 the Volvo Gili tie-up is is seen as being relatively successful from a business, from like from a car business perspective. Do you think it's it's seen as as a success as well from a from a policy perspective in China? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think they are certainly careful to boast too much about it, um, even on the the financial aspect, because the same logic applies still today that they don't want to draw attention to um, the sort of. Chinese backing and they want Volvo to exist in, in the market as Volvo always has um, and, and not as a, a Chinese company. Loosely related. Uh, I, I'm sure you've read the book Ghost Fleet. Yeah. 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 So I think that came out in 2015 or maybe it was earlier. Uh, for those who haven't read Ghost Fleet, it's basically uh, Red Storm Rising, except that the Chinese instead of the, the Warsaw Pact. And uh, the entire, basically, the entire American uh, military is crippled by its over reliance on software and hardware with pieces, bits that are were China, made in China that have embedded deep, 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 deep code that disables them at the point of conflict begins. Uh, and it's only by use of this ghost fleet of like very primitive, archaic, non networked. Uh, systems, ships, and aircraft, kind of like the 2004 Battlestar Galactica remake, um, that the United States ultimately prevails. I'm not giving away much here. The book is was, I think, at one time considered controversial and visionary, but now is a little out of date. Um, but to, to what extent, looking at it's been some probably 10 years since that book was conceived and six since it came out, how much of that book do you think is um, fear-mongering versus like, a legitimate concern that anything with the Chinese chip in it actually is potentially a national security threat. Um, I don't, I don't think it is really falling into the territory of fear monitoring, especially when you're thinking about um, the use cases or applications of equipment. So the stuff that's, you know, really discussed in, in that book, I think when you have something that exists within a network that um, then connects to, other things that are sensitive and critical. Yeah, I think there, there's no reason for um, labeling any of that fear mongering. I think it's it's fairly legitimate concerns. Um, anything that you know has a, a power source and ability to transmit information is going to um, bring some degree of security risk. Um, that's not to say that every you know smart refrigerator that we have plugged in is reason for concern, but um, I do think as you know, we have more networked systems, particularly in terms of 
industrial IoT for production. Um, and then when we talk about um, the ways that there may be industrial IoT applications contributing to um, autonomous vehicle use cases, um, you're talking about, you know, real life um, security concerns that, um, yeah, I think not fear monitoring, I think legitimate to be worried about. Are F-35's reliance on chipsets manufactured in China where it's such that they could be disabled <laughs> prior to entering an air-to-air engagement? Um, I would think that that's a legitimate concern. I would also hope that there's a trusted supply chain for the ones that have that capacity um, to deliver that type of effect. Um, and I think there's you know a number of DARPA programs that have been stood up over the past 20 years to have um, a trusted supply chain, even if, you know, fairly limited. Um, I think on, on the F-35 on um, that one, you may have as much or more concern about um, production capacity with the amount of rare earth magnets that you need for um, that generation of plane as you would about the, the, the chips. I'm sorry to geek out here, um, but uh, is it We're true? waiting for it, Alex. What? Come on. Is it true that the F-22 production was curtailed because trade, uh, of espionage that had re- revealed design aspects to the Chinese and that resulted in their own kind of duplicate fighter? Uh, certainly the, the replication. Now uh, the replication is, is very real um, and, and it has happened for, you know, a, a few generations of um, both aircraft, but across military platforms. Um, so that piece is real. Um, and I think when you, when you think about um, stealth technology, um, and different types of signals and um, um, sort of electronic jamming use cases and implications. There's reason to think that if you give up a design um, aspect that you are also giving up something in terms of vulnerability of your platform. I don't know that that's the case with the F-22. Um, I think definitely the replication is is, is real. Um, I don't know that anything from the replication reveals something that wouldn't have already been known in terms of um, vulnerability. You mentioned autonomous vehicles. I mean, this is the autonomous. We have to. I have to ask you to to dig into that before. So, so you mentioned IoT specifically, which is really interesting because there is definitely you can definitely if you look at the U.S. sort of based uh, AV developers, um, they kind of see connected or sort of VDX technology as being sort of a nice to have thing, but they try and keep the uh, keep it out of the core, you know, safety functions. Um, uh, whereas in China, they, you know, every they're, they're constantly saying, and, and you see it sort of stated explicitly in the media that, like, the fact that we have five G essentially allows us to have, you know, more of these deployments faster than others. Um, so, so, so I'm sorry. So your your theory on the your interpretation of this is that maybe the IoT supply chain is the opportunity to sort of do what they've done in in EVs with with AVs in terms of dominating the supply chain. Yeah, I think definitely on the hardware side, that's a big piece of it. And then I think um, as you think about applications and use cases, um, which you underscored with just having 5G base stations and a functioning network means that they're going to get to um, larger experimentation quicker. Um, So that, you know, in theory will lead to mass adoption quicker. Um, So their, their experimentation cycles um, at the later stages, maybe higher. Um, and I think all, all of that positioning, so I think yes is, is the quick answer on, um, I think the hardware aspects of what we're talking about in terms of 
um, having IoT modules at the ready and ways to incorporate them into all sorts of gear. Um, but then I think that this also speaks to um, uh, an interesting conversation that you all had on a previous episode about whether the autonomy set of questions about solving for our autonomy or about solving for um, sustainable business models and, and ecosystems that can apply that technology. Um, and that's where I think the the Chinese system is uniquely positioned. Um, and I think a, an analogy was made to the Solyndra um, dynamic in um, having you know hopes about the solar industry 10, 15 years ago. Um, and that would be another case where the U.S. system had the technology and um, had the vision to be pursuing, um, but that you know, Solyndra blew up, and ten years later, um, the solar market is dominated by Chinese players because they are in an environment like the one that we're detailing here for autos, EVs, and possibly in AVs as well, where the Chinese industrial policy and technological system is oriented for um, applying and developing um, business ecosystems that may be sustainable um, once technology is proven and, and borne out to work. I had a quick question about um, what Ed had mentioned uh, in terms of the supply chain and sort of going after that, uh, taking advantage of 5G and going after that IoT piece. If, if local, meaning US-based robo-taxi companies or companies that are pursuing that um, veer away from adopting that too much, then is this going to be something that is just kind of being pushed and occurring in China? Or do you see actual Chinese players lobbying for and pushing for that type of technology to be used in the United States and in Europe? Are they directly communicating with with the AV developers here in the States to, to encourage that? I don't know that they are actively right now. The the playbook would make sense that they would. Um, and I think, and, but this is a very different policy environment than, you know, if you want to use the, the solar analogy, you have sort of supporting winds pushing forward and not much pushing back um, in, in that case. Whereas here, there's a whole host of um, just real world infrastructure and security concerns that um, are different and will you know, put up a different type of hurdle. Um, but I would anticipate, yes, I think it seems at least at this early stage that um, the Chinese system is pursuing possibly a, a different technological approach and that they'll do what they can through supply chain dominance, through um, the influence of their sort of go out champions to um, influence the way that adoption happens here in the U.S., even through you know influencing policy. Right. Um, because I'm thinking that, of course, if if the U.S. approach is is different, then then there might not be that dominance. And in the unique situation that's happening with robotaxi companies is that we don't have any U.S. based companies that are operating or testing in China, as far as I know. But we do have that on the opposite side. Right. There is a number of companies um, we ride AutoX, Pony, um, and a number of others, Baidu, that are based in China and have roots in China and financial ties in China and are testing in both the U.S. and in, in China. So um, I'll be interested to see how it plays out and if they're able to push that sort of way of thinking onto other companies here in the United States. I, I think it's going to be a, a compelling story because you may see cases where 
milestones and functionality are realized in Chinese experimentation that then, you know, give those companies extra leverage to influence the markets here. Um, because it'll be very apparent that China is a step ahead um, and they have the, you know, the playbook and the approach to, to bring it here because they're bringing it from, you know, where it worked. So uh, I think entirely on board. So when this episode airs, um, I will probably be on my way to a, a truck trip across Nevada um, that is starting at the only currently uh, operating lithium mine in America. There's only one of them. Um, and uh, it ends up sort of up by Thacker Pass, which is where they're trying to build the second one. It's an environmental review right now. Um, so I'm I'm really curious to, to see the, the the lithium belt. But I, I think there's a it, to me, it raises a broader question, which is, you know, is it even possible at this point for the U.S. to sort of step away from this dependence on on China? Because it's not just, as you mentioned, the upstream resource extraction. It's also processing that into better grade minerals. I know that that processing is like overwhelmingly in China. So it's like every step of that of that battery supply chain is there. Is it is it even possible for the U.S. to to sort of build a, a reasonable amount of of independence in our supply chain? Um, can it can it even be done? I think that it absolutely is, and I think that we have enduring advantages within the sector here in the United States, including the fact that we remain, you know, a colossal consumption economy. So, what the U.S. consumer wants and buys um, has a big amount of influence that isn't necessarily receding. Um, we have the legacy OEMs who um, have, you know, the drawbacks of incumbency in any sort of disruption game, but also have all of the um, value of being the incumbent and having infrastructure and having resources. Um, and then we also have most of the innovation at a very fundamental basic level. Um, but I think there's certainly the the risk of being captive at supply chain, um, at hardware, at, at the stage of application, um, and then certainly at risk of having um, sort of the, the spinoff of technology theft or technology cooperation that um, gives the alternative system an advantage. Um, so I think if we're able to protect technology, if we're able to make smart investment decisions, both from corporate and government players, um, there's no reason to write it off entirely at this moment. I think it's an active question and, and one that, at least from the policy perspective, seems to be on um, the minds of the you know the highest level in DC. And just to kind of wrap up, like, what, what, how, what should people expect, sort of, from China in terms of their pursuing this strategy, both in, in EV, but then, but then maybe in AV as well? Um, what, what do you foresee? Um, do you, is more confrontational, like continuing to be sort of subtle and and you know, kind of behind the curtain maneuvering? Um, what's your expectation going forward? I would expect that in in the immediate, there's going to be more sort of subsurface competition that China is going to continue to, in, in the EV space, invest in um, the Lucids and, and Rimax as they continue to appear and continue to have access to um, whatever they may perceive as the, the next piece of technology. Um, and they'll keep a low profile and they'll downplay security risks and downplay the role of centralized industrial policy so that they can continue to engage with those sectors. Over time, um, if the nature of US-China and, and Western-China sort of geopolitical relations remain strained over the next five to 10 years, I think you would expect to see logically a, a more combative and overtly aggressive Chinese positioning. But I think that's where you may see 
even that sort of more aggressive tone coming through indirect um, channels. So the, the Volvos and Lotuses of the world, as opposed to necessarily seeing some rapid expansion of um, Neo's global presence. Um, so I think it'll be um, near term, likely a, a lot of the same and, and subsurface, and then slightly longer term um, risk for um, more overt competition, but, but even then likely to be playing out through these indirect channels. Um, proxy wars, if you will. Yeah. Well, um, I know I could keep asking questions for, for hours and hours. Uh, Alex, and, I mean, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I've got go one ahead. more. I have one more question. Go ahead, so Alex. Re- re- recently, Wired Magazine devoted an entire issue to, I think, the first chapter of an unreleased book, which is kind of like a sequel to Ghost Fleet, which uh, depicts like a, a like a high level meeting in like Hainan Island where it is de- decided that it's China's time to, you know, it, declare war and it's basic and that there's a war is inevitable and therefore uh, just, let's just do it now. I mean, if that's the worst case scenario, like is, what does the best case scenario look like for the future of business and politics? Like, can there be, friendly coexistence and competition indefinitely or friendly to middling competition indefinitely? I, I think actually the, the Chinese preference would be to have friendly and, and middling competition indefinitely so that they can gradually sort of move up the value chain and um, assert a role again without like direct over pushback. Um, so I think that there's yeah a decent expectation that that's the case. I think there's always the, the risk for that um, low probability, but a high impact type event. And certainly I think we're in an environment now where there may be, you know, unintended sort of um, risk and unintended escalation um, for types of like kinetic conflict. Um, But I think certainly from the Chinese perspective, I don't think that that's desired. I think they'd much rather pursue in this sort of middling um, sphere and certainly will look to sort of peel off U.S., allies and partners and to have closer relations with Europeans if and if and when they're able to um, so as to guarantee that that middling sort of simmering of conflict um, continues to be the the trend of the time so if people want to follow this topic learn more than than they do here um, I don't think we're going to be doing a ton more episodes about it. I mean this has been fascinating but there's still so much for us to cover hey you, you never, never know. know I mean, I mean Tesla yeah, needs we'll, to be, yeah Tesla Robo taxis. China policy. I think there's a lot of interest there. Wait a second. Wait, wait. There's one more question we have to ask. How much? What is the veracity of the story that just came, recently came out about uh, uh, the Chinese uh, military banning the driving of personally owned Teslas by Chinese officers or officials onto military bases? Is that is that true? I haven't been able to verify it. It would make total sense that it is. I would expect that it's actually more um, not like military wide but more um locality based um and base type decisions like certainly we've been seeing a ton of um pictures of um signs that were made to ban teslas from commercial spaces like they're real signs so you know someone went through the effort of um you know contracting with someone to create this plastic sign and you know, invested however much money and time to do that. So uh, I don't think they anticipated to go away necessarily overnight. Um, I don't know that the entire military has has followed through the ban, but it would make sense, um, particularly if applied at a kind of base or municipal kind of level. 
All right. Well, um, if, if people want to follow your work or, or your company, um, do you have like a social media presence, a, a, a website, something you want to you let them know about to, to keep following this? Sure. I think uh, horizonadvisory.org and we'll have a, um, a deep dive report on Chinese auto sector and electric vehicle policy coming out soon. So horizonadvisory.org would be the, the best bet to catch that. Awesome. Well, I will definitely be uh, tweeting that as well when it comes out, um, as well as reading it. So, um, uh, Nathan, thank you so much for uh, for walking through this uh, as through this like really complex but but fascinating conversation today. Thanks for humoring me, guys. Our pleasure, and uh, we will uh, see you again here on another episode of the Atonicast. Cast.